Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. I was very death, deathly sick, had a terrible cold, and I was trying to reach Miss Hepburn. And in those days, there was a phone backstage, a payphone, and I called it a hundred times, but I never got anybody. Well, I'm lying in my bed, sick as a dog, at around eight o'clock, I hear this pounding on my door. Who's that? It's Miss Hepburn, open up! Miss Hepburn, what are, you, what are you doing here? I was so worried about you. I was so worried about you. What? Oh my God, you look terrible. Oh my God, you have a terrible cold. We have to make some chicken soup for you. She goes into my kitchen, small little kitchen, and she's opening up the closet doors and she says, where's the terrine? Where's the terrine? <laughs> and I didn't even know what a fucking terrine was. She said, don't you have any terrine? I said, no, I never cook. Is there a deli around here? I said, yes, two blocks away, there's Kaplan's Deli on 59th Street and 3rd Avenue. Miss Hepburn trudged in the snow, six feet of snow, got me chicken soup with matzo balls, and then my gross anatomy book was there. It was a big, big book the size of this table, and she served me the chicken soup with matzo balls on that gross anatomy book. That's Miss Hepburn. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Before I get started, I want to thank you so much for everything you've done for this podcast. Your support has been invaluable to helping the show get to the levels that it is, and I will never stop thanking you. The comments, the tweets, the emails, the FedExes. I can never, ever tell you how appreciative I am. And if you need to reach me ever, you can do so at Barry Katz at Twitter and Instagram. I answer everything I can. (laughs) Sometimes it takes longer than normal, but I will be there eventually. And I'm really excited about this part two with my guest today, Howard Rosenman. This guy is incredible, and as I always like to do, I like to sit across from my guest and and think about what I'm going to say that relates to the podcast and all of you in the audience who listen. And when I think of Howard Rosenman, I think of a man who is legendary. 
I think of somebody who has used every single cylinder in his engine. This is a guy who produces Broadway shows, has done films that are musical, romantic comedy films, scripted television series, documentaries, has relationships with everybody that you can imagine of every level in the business, from John Wells to Sam Raimi to Nicolas Cage to Sir Ben Kingsley and Steve Martin. He's a guy who's a teacher and spends his time traveling across the country to inspire students on the East Coast and also on the West Coast. He's a philanthropist who's helped raise so much money for charity. He's been an actor in an Oscar-winning film, and he's also won a Peabody and an Academy Award for one of the most moving documentaries of my generation. Common Threads, Stories from the Quilt. And if you've never seen that, just pause this podcast now and figure out how you're going to watch it tonight. Truly, truly, one of the most special documentaries that I've ever seen in my entire life. So as you can tell, this is a man that does everything. He's a guy who, if you listen to these podcasts, have had people take him down when he was at his lowest point, try to intimidate him, try to take him out of what he was rightly entitled to. And instead of backing down to people who are more powerful than him, he stood up to all those forces that tried to damage him and fought hard for what he believed in and won almost every single time. So when you listen to this man, when you hear the stories of him with geniuses like Leonard Bernstein and Diane von Furstenberg, and everybody in between, you realize that this is somebody who has forged a career that spans decades and decades and decades. And he didn't just go at it with one lane. He didn't go at it with two lanes. He went at it with every fiber of his body for so many different avenues of the business, which created more chance of success than just going for one thing in one direction and because of that the man has produced over 30 films and he has relationships with some of the greatest artists and geniuses of our generation and in whatever profession you work in if you can be in a situation where you not only master one lane but you master several lanes and then you create extraordinary relationships along the way with all of those projects which foster more and more positive relationships and then you teach and you give back to people who are younger than you who want a mentor and then you help raise millions of dollars for charity and along the way, if you make those things happen, you're always going to be recognized. 
you're always going to move up in the world. In Howard's case, recognized with an Academy and Peabody Award. How often does that happen? And so if you can do all these things in your profession with the relationships and all the cylinders in your engine working and you don't let doubt crush you along the way and put it out of your mind, I can guarantee you, you will have the possibility of having the kind of extraordinary career that Howard Rosenman has. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in showbiz and you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. So you go to the premiere before the movie is in the theaters, and Barbara comes to the premiere. Ryan O'Neill comes to the premiere. Do you know that she hates the movie at the premiere? Kind of. How do you know? Because uh, I, I know. Because I had a lot of friends working at First Artists. I had a lot of friends working at the John Peters organization. What was it she didn't like? She didn't like her performance? I don't think she liked Howard Zeef and... I don't. I don't know what she didn't like. She had a bad taste in her mouth because I, I fucked her on the deal. She tried to fuck me. So the movie was at MGM. Sue Menger's first artist was based at Warner Brothers. We had to get it out of MGM in turnaround, which is a producerial right. You have the right to turn the movie around. You have it for 12 or 18 months, depending upon what your precedent is. And then you have to pay back the original company the money that they invested. And then you as the producer could set it up elsewhere. Okay? It's not used a lot now because so many famous movies were made and turn around. So we had to get the movie out of MGM in order to give it... Cause John Peters said yes. What did MGM have into the movie at that point? Mm, maybe two, three hundred thousand dollars. At that time, it was a lot. At any rate, so Sue says to me, she understood her players. This was the genius of Sue. She's and she knew that I hated people that weren't authentic. And she said to me, Dick Shepard, his real name was Shepatinsky, and he married Louis B. Mayer's daughter, and they sleep in separate bedrooms. Now, go in there and get that movie out of fucking MGM. <laughs> and she knew that I had a volatile temper. I was angry in those days. I go in. There's Sherry and Renee Missile, and Renee doesn't know what's going on in my mind and doesn't know any of the Barbara Streisand stuff. And they're all there. Everybody's there. They're all the MGM executives. The and purpose of the meeting at that point... Was to get a new writer on this shitty script. So... Um, Dick Shepard, Dick Shepard opens the meeting and says, I want to get Neil Diamond, Neil Simon to write, to rewrite this screenplay. And I say, I don't want to make a Neil Simon movie. I'm too young. He says to me, young man, you have a big mouth. I said, you bet your fucking ass I have a big mouth. Give me my fucking movie back and turn around. I don't want to make it with you. MGM is a production company. And let me tell you something. Breakfast at Tiffany's was 25 years ago. The last movie that you made was The Phoenician and the Gypsy. I don't want to work with you. 
and I walk out. At the time, Renee and I had our offices at Universal. We were developing Resurrection. Well, he was stunned. He calls up Renee later on in the afternoon and says, has your hot-headed partner cooled down? I look at Renee and I say, no. She says, no. He says, okay, I'll give it to you and turn around. I don't want to work with him. He gives it to us and turn around. And we set it up. Three weeks later, the deal was announced and he was fired. And that, so then what happened, it took us six months to negotiate the deal with Barbara. Okay. At the time, I didn't have a pot to piss in. I was on unemployment. Listen to this. Where were you living? On Alcaloma. How big was the apartment? Mm, small little apartment. Two rooms, a bedroom and a living room and a kitchen. But I have deals and I have a lot of famous people that are my, and rich people that are my mentors. They don't know that you're poor. Well, they do know. And that's the point of the story. So the budget of the movie was now what? $7 million. $7 million. When you're negotiating with Barbara Streisand, does the movie studio at that time, back then, give you breakage if it's going to cost more for her? When I say breakage, do they give you more money to get her over yes. the $7 million? Okay. Yes. So um, it took us six months to negotiate the deal. And Barbara would say things like, I want to have the right to put their credits anywhere I want, me and Renee. We were the producers, okay? That means she could have put it at the end titles after the dog walker. But we stood firm, and we made a deal for $400,000 and five points. Big deal in those days. Gross points, net points. Net points. Net points. I was a net player. So you gave her some of your points. Yes, Exactly. Did it have to come from you? Yes, or? me and Renee. Yes. But then when you do that, this is what always is the cascade failure of negotiation. Then Ryan O'Neill finds out that she's getting right. the five percent, and then you got to give him something. We had to give him two. We were left. We had a floor of a, a, a. There's a floor and a ceiling. We had a floor of five points, and we yeah. reached our floor. Okay, that's in the negotiation. Took us six months to negotiate that, and we eventually got a deal five hundred. $400,000 and five points and producer credit in front of the titles. Got it. Did she get a producer credit? Yeah. You know, she was very powerful. She was the most powerful star in the world at that time. And you're living in an apartment at Alta Loma. Right. And, but I'm developing Resurrection at Universal and I have an overall deal at Universal with Ned Tanner. And I have very famous friends, very fancy friends. But you never invite anybody to come over your house. Exactly. How old are you now? Seven, 1975, I'm 30. Okay. So I was born in 45. Yeah, it's, it's 30. Exactly. So they're closing the deal. And there are so many companies involved to sign off the turnaround and to create all the deals. This is a John Peters organization, JPO. There's Roseman Missile. There's First Artists. There's the Barbara Streisand Company. Okay. I forget what that was called. Sissy, whatever her name was, the head of it. There was MGM. There was Warner Brothers. There were like 10 companies involved. And when they're signing the instruments of transfer, there are 30 lawyers around the table, okay, to make all the signage so that this could be done all in one shot after all the negotiations. My lawyer at the time was Norman Gary, who was Steven Spielberg's lawyer, who later committed suicide. I get a call from Norman in the middle of this signage. He said, Howard, they want to cut your deal in half, you and Renee. 
In other words, not $400,000, but $200,000 and two and a half points. I said, how could they do that? He said, they know you don't have a pot to piss in and they're going to do it. And they know how desperate you are to make a Barbra Streisand movie. So I say to Norman, Norman, I'm your client and you're my lawyer. You tell the assembled lawyers in John Peters to take this phone and shove it up his fucking asshole. John Peters gets on the phone and says, you fucking cocksucker, he says to me. You are crazy. You belong in Camarillo. You're <laughs> out of your fucking mind because the only person that ever produced a Barbra Streisand other than movie other than me was Ray Stark, and you're getting the chance of a lifetime. And I said to him the following. You just paid Ryan O'Neill a million dollars and Howard Z $50,000 to hold them, but you, John, hairdresser, don't own the movie. Me and Renee have the turnaround rights. We own the movie. So tell your greedy venal girlfriend that here's the new deal. $600,000, $50,000 in cash by the end of business today, and seven and a half points. If you don't do this, I'm going to give the script to Diane Keaton, to Diana Ross, to Jill Clayburgh. Fuck you and fuck your girlfriend. And I hung up the phone. And that's on a speakerphone with everyone. Everyone's hearing it. Well, my lawyer, Norman Gary, is freaked out. I can hear him turn pale. And he comes to pick me up at Universal because he knows that if Renee works on me, that I'll relent. And he takes me out to Malibu, okay? At the close of business that day, $50,000 in cash was delivered to Norman Gary's office. Because they had spent a million dollars. I could have walked away with that, that money and they would have been holding the bag. That cemented my reputation in Hollywood as a tough motherfucker and also created a tremendous animus between me and Barbara Streisand to this day. I mean, we made up several times, but she hates me. I don't give a fuck. I hate her. I, I was obsessed with her. I think she's the greatest star in the world, has the greatest voice in the world. I saw Funny Girl the play 36 times. I came out to Hollywood to make a Barbara Streisand movie. Fuck her. <laughs> Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention some names. Okay. And you just tell me 
what comes to mind. It could be a few words. It could be a sentence. It could be a story. Okay. Gore Vidal. Hate his guts. I was very, very close <laughs> to... I'm glad he's dead. I was very, very close to Gore and his lover, Howard Austin. Very close. To the Gayville. I met them in 67, 68. I went to Gore's house in, the, in Italy. You know, I was very close to them, you know, from the gay world. And... Um, he even asked me to be his secretary when he ran for Senate here in California. Then he published an article in The Nation magazine, which was extremely anti-Semitic, very anti-Semitic, and said, I'm, going, I'm the pin that's going to prick the balloon of pomposity of the Israelis. But you knew him very well. Did you ever see the side of he him? He had a Jewish boyfriend. No, I never saw that side. I never read all his work. I never, I, you know, he was critical about everything. Is it you possible know? that some of the article was misquoted? No. You can read the article today. You, you know, Google Gore Vidal and read the article. Google anti-Semitism and Gore Vidal. You'll get it right away. Well, I was crazed by that article. And he was, um, he was uh, needling Midge Dechter and uh, Norman Podhoretz, who were the editors of Commentary, a Jewish magazine, because they were anti-gay. Um, but his anti-Semitism came out in this article. Well, I called up all my friends in Hollywood, and I said, if you invite Gore Vidal to your party or your house, you are fomenting anti-Semitism. And what happened was a lot of people stopped inviting Gore, and Gore called me up and begged to make a, in Arabic, there's a thing called a socha, from the Hebrew word slicha, and the Arabic word slicha, which means forgiveness, forgive me. So Gore asked David Geffen to create a socha for me and Gore at David Geffen's house in Malibu, which I went to, but I never forgave him. Okay, so you go, and what happens in that meeting? So Gore goes on and on and on, and then never recants his words from the nation. And I still think he's an anti-Semite and says to me, you, you're a Jew. You know, I said, let me tell you something. You're a fucking Irish pig. I said, your ancestors grew fucking potatoes in Ireland. What the fuck are you talking about? You're nothing. That's what I said to Gore to his face. What is Geffen doing at this time? Freaking out. So he can't do anything. No, not with me. Who storms out first? I stayed. I didn't give a shit. Gore stormed out. And we never spoke again. Oh, we did speak a little bit towards the very end. Howard Austin died and we spoke. You know, he was a died in the wall anti-Semite. You know. Although he loved Howard Austin, which was a paradox. Gore, Gore was a very paradoxical figure. A lot of people adore him and love him and revere him. I don't. When he was a young man and started writing, when he wrote that first novel, Pillars. I forget what, what the novel was named. All the Jewish intellectuals in New York kicked him aside and said that he had no talent. So he had this real chip on his shoulders about Jewish intellectuals and hated them and carried it throughout his life. Robin Williams. The greatest guy ever. To, 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 ever. I used to play, um, what do you call when you pantomime words, what's that game? Charades. Charades with Robin Williams in 1968, 69, and 70 in San Francisco. And Robin Williams often said I was the greatest charade player that he ever met. Then I made a movie with Robin Williams called Noel. 
And Noel was about Christmas miracles. And one of the characters in Noel was a priest, a Roman Catholic priest, who was on his deathbed and dying and lost his faith. And I have a parrot that David Geffen gave me. And my parrot um, is very smart. And Geffen used to walk into my house and he would talk about who was decorating the interior of his jets. And my parrot would say, get her. (laughs) (laughs) And so I tell this story to Robin Williams, uh, you know, on the set. Robin is doing the take. Chas Palminteri is directing. Susan Sarandon is at his bedside. He's lying down as a Roman Catholic priest dying. They do the take. Chas Palminteri says, cut. Robin Williams gets up and says, get her. (laughs) (laughs) Michael Douglas. I made a movie called Shining Through. And in the early days, I had partied with Michael Douglas a lot and Brenda Vaccaro, who he was involved with, who was in Midnight Cowboy. And we were friends, you know, not great friends, but, but friends. I had this movie at Columbia called Shining Through that Dawn Steele um, gave me the go-ahead. And Dawn Steele said, if you can get Michael Douglas, I'll make this movie. Originally, she wanted Deborah Winger to play the part, but Deborah Winger wanted me and Renee, me and who else did I make that movie with? Carol, removed. But we, we, we nixed that. So I go to the Grammy presentation in New York at Radio City with Michael Douglas. And there, Melanie Griffith is presenting. And she had just done this picture called Something Wild that Jonathan Demme directed. And Michael Douglas says to me, I'll do this if you get Melanie Griffith to play the part. Dawn said to me, I'll make this movie with Michael Douglas. Well, it was easy to get Melanie Griffith, you know. And so that's how Shining Through happened. That's Michael Douglas. I love him. Sir Ben Kingsley. Well, when he did um, the movie that I made with him called, what was it? You Kill Me. So Ben Kingsley, the day, like the week before our uh, movie started shooting, he announced to the world that he wanted to be called Sir Ben Kingsley. And then, uh, uh, what's his name? Paul McCartney took out an ad in the in some British newspaper and made mocked it, okay? And there was a, um, Ben Kingsley, someone from Ben Kingsley's camp circulated this memo that we had to call him Sir, okay, Ben Kingsley. I don't think Ben Kingsley said that. It was somebody on his staff. Maybe he said, you know, that's what I like. But then they recanted that memo. I like Ben Kingsley. He's Jewish, he's smart. I just saw him in um, uh, the Operation Finale. He was brilliant. He's one of the most brilliant actors ever. I love him. He's the greatest. Quote, he jerked off in a fucking peach. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Timothy Chalamet. I just made a movie called Call Me By Your Name, which was nominated for four Oscars, Best Actor, Best Picture, Best Music, and Best Adapted Screenplay. And the novel that it was based on by Andre Asiman has an incredible scene where the young boy, Ilio, jerks off into a peach, and then his paramour, played by Army Hammer, in the book, he eats the peach. In the movie, we don't have him eating the peach. 
But Timothy Chalamet is brilliant. I just saw him last night in Beautiful Boy. He's just one of the most brilliant actors ever. And Luca Guadagnino is a genius. I might say that Luca's a genius, okay? And the movie was, uh, got 100 on Metacritic for six months, 100 on Rotten Tomatoes, and it won, it won 198 awards. And me and Peter Spears, who made the movie together, picked up 40 of those awards. And Brian Swartzman, Peter Spears' husband, did the heavy lifting because he represents Silla Swinton and Luca Guadagnino made two of those movies. And really, Brian put it together with Peter. They did the heavy lifting. Tom Hanks. One of the truly great men of the business. I made a documentary called Celluloid Closet um, about the history of gay and lesbian images in film, I'm nominated for an Oscar, and won us our second Peabody. The first Oscar that I won was for, that I, I didn't win, the, the, the movie one, uh, called um, Common Thread Stories from the Court. Amazing. Amazing documentary. To follow six people from the time they get infected till the time they end up on the quilt. The quilt is like, well, there was a thing called the Names Project, and that was the list of everybody that died of AIDS. And we're talking 1985. By that time, 50,000 people had died of AIDS. No one can understand what really happened from 1981 to 1987. It was the most horrible of times. I mean, I went through it. I don't know how I lived through it, because every day I was going to the hospital to care for a friend or to bury a friend. It was a nightmare, a horrible, horrible nightmare. And then Cleve Jones started the Names Project in San Francisco. And out of that came the concept for the quilt. The quilt is a memorial. The quilt, quilting is a very American um, uh, pastime. Uh, what's her name? Betsy Ross. She did the quilt. They did that in revolutionary times. It's a very, very, they, patchwork quilts are very, very American. So they decided to create quilts in memory of each of the person that died of AIDS. Each panel is six feet by three feet, the size of a coffin. And if you were into motorcycles, they embroidered it with motorcycles. If you were into the movie business, they put various like pictures of Barbara Streisand or whoever you were into. The first time that the quilt was unfurled in Southern California was at the Pauley Pavilion at UCLA. It was the size of a basketball court. And all the other panels were hanging from the rafters. And the last time it was spread, was I think in 1992, it 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 started at the White House and went all, all the way to the Lincoln Memorial to the uh, George Washington Memorial and back, acres and acres and acres, about 50,000 panels. It's the largest piece of artwork in the world. I made a documentary about this quilt with Rob Epstein and Jeff Friedman, who had directed Milk and won an Oscar for it about Harvey Milk, and then it's a long story how I got involved with that, but. Um, we made that documentary, it won an Oscar and a Peabody, and it's one of the best things I've ever done in my life. And then after that, we made the celluloid closet t together, and I had to get clips from the studios. Eventually, I got $3 million worth of clips and for nothing, which is another story. Um, and um, that was nominated for an Oscar and won us a second Peabody. So in answer to your question about Tom Hanks, Tom Hanks was one of the people that we interviewed, and he was in a movie I forget the name of the movie, but he plays a passenger. He's hitchhiking, and the guy in the, who's driving is gay and makes a pass at him. And Tom Hanks commented on this scene, but when Tom Hanks came into the studio, he was the only one that didn't ask for a hairdresser, didn't ask for a costumer. He was just a real guy, drove himself 
parked himself, came to the set, took a comb, combed his hair, and did the scene. He's the greatest. A real guy, a real mensch. Whitney Houston. One of the greatest. I worked with three of the greatest voices in the history of the 20th century. Whitney Houston, Barbara Streisand, and Aretha Franklin. Whitney was unreal. I went to her first recording session, and her and 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 my movie. She did her last recording session because I remade my first movie, Sparkle, with Whitney. What happened was that Whitney, when she was a young girl in Newark growing up, she went to the movies on Saturday to see my version of Sparkle. And she went at noon and she stayed all day long and saw it over and over and over again. And she wanted, she loved it. And it inspired her to become an entertainer. And then later on, she wanted to remake it. Now, in around 1973 or 74, Sissy Houston, her mother, who was a background singer for Elvis and a singer in her own right, and I loved Sissy, was appearing at a club in New York on 70th in Amsterdam called Sweetwaters. And I it was a comedy club, too. Yeah. And I went with Paul Jabara, who was my, had been my roommate, who wrote um, It's Raining Man and Last Dance and Enough is Enough in the main event, an Arab who was my roommate. Christian Arab and um, Paul we loved Sissy but in the middle of the set Sissy introduced her um, daughter and she had a name I forget what they called her it wasn't uh, she didn't call her Whitney she, she called her by her it was four letters I, feel, I forget the name which they called her um, she said my daughter's listen to her voice and Paul and I and I went with Kitty too Paul and I and Kitty looked at each other and rolled our eyes she was wearing a tracksuit and her, she had a little afro and she opened up her mouth and it was the most incredible thing we had ever heard in our lives how old was she then 15 16 17 something like that and I think Clive Davis was in the audience that night and then Paul who had always gotten these women like Donna Summer and Barbara Streisand aggressively used to corner them and get them to agree to sing his song. So Barbara sang the main event with, with Donna. Um, Enough is Enough. Donna sang Paul Jabara's song. And then Whitney agreed to sing a Paul Jabara song, which you can get on iTunes right now, which is the first song. And I was at the recording session. And then she remade Sparkle years and years later, just about five years ago. She was totally sober during the making of the movie in Detroit and so loved, and it was her comeback because she had been involved in naughty things before. She was in such great shape. She was so divine. And, and even when she wasn't working, she came to the set to be with Jordan Sparks and to be with the rest of the girls. She was so in incredible. And then she came to California the, the, when Clive Davis for the Grammys and my boyfriend at the time sent me an email and said, you should check out these pictures of Whitney. She's back on the hooch. And I said, you fucking idiot. She's not back on the hooch. And of course, she died. And it was a terrible, terrible tragedy. Terrible, 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 terrible. Julia Roberts at 17. So at 17, I had come back from Israel because I went to Israel because I had been wrongly diagnosed with HIV. I'm HIV negative. I would faint and I would sweat and I would have diarrhea and they didn't know what it was. And then I had a little spot on my hand and I went to my doctor my doctor said, you have Kaposi sarcoma. It was a purple spot. It's over. Pack up your bags. He said it's over. It's over. 
pack, and that time it was a death sentence. Pack your bags. It's over. Write a will. It's over. He was disgusting. He's dead now, thank God. So um, I went to Israel to be with my sister. She was living there then. Her husband was in medical school. I didn't tell my sister what was going on. I was scared to death because all my friends were dying. And they were dying quickly and brutally. It was so horrible. You can't believe how horrible it was. But I didn't come down with any of the opportunistic infections. Kaposi sarcoma, pneumocystis, ITP, my, multiple myeloma, you know, all those diseases. And the hallmark of the disease are these opportunistic infections. So I went to a doctor in Tel Aviv. And at that time, they knew that it was a virus. And he said to me, if you have HIV, it's a very attenuated form. You're not going to die of this disease because you don't have any of the hallmarks of the disease, which are the opportunistic infections, okay, which people died of, the cancers. Go back to Hollywood and make movies. So I went back to Hollywood. Now, people talk. So people, you get back to Hollywood and they're like, already has AIDS. And I, the main event made so much money. And during 1979, 80, 81, I partied to a fairly well. By the time my game was over in 1983, I was addicted to 21 different substances. 21 different, different substances. substances. So you spent all your money that you spent made. all my money and ruined my life and so ruined my career and ruined everything. And then I went to a guy named Ron Siegel who got me off. He, he uh, works out of UCLA. So you lost everything. Nobody wants to work with you and they think you have HIV. Exactly. And so for five years, you're back at the small apartment. On yes. What about your partner that you're working with? Did she give up on you? Yeah. She didn't give up on me, but, but the partnership ended because I was so wild. I was very, very promiscuous during the late 70s and 80s. It was a different time. And Coke was de rigueur. You would go to a meeting with Don Simpson. He would have a silver bowl and take out a silver cup, pour it on the table, cut it with a credit card, and then give you a silver straw. That's how a meeting would start. Hollywood was wild in 78, 79, 80. 77, 78, 79, 80. At any rate... I'll tell you a funny story about my father. My, my father, after we made up, my father says to me, uh, we're in shul in 1987 on Yom Kippur. My father's wearing a kittle, which is the white shrouds that you wear, and a talus. And he says to me, your mother, he says to me, is the only one I've ever been with. I've loved her. They had a very fantastic relationship. They've been married 60 years. Your mother's the only one I've ever been with. Tell me, Tzvi. Oh, and I had made a deal with him after I got back from Israel that we could be friends if he keeps away from sex and religion. You know, that I said, when I come to your house on Shabbat, I won't use the phone, I'll go to shul with you, I'll stay until the end of Shabbat, and I'll follow your rules, but don't ask me where I'm gonna eat Manhattan on Sunday night, because I'll tell you, because I wanted to be honest with him. Pretty much he abided by that until this time, where he says to me, your mother's the only one I've been with. Tell me, Tzvi, my real name is Tzvi, how many people have you been with? I said, Abba, Dad. It's Yom Kippur. We're in shul. You agreed not to go there about sex. But he was relentless, like he always was. He said, tell me. Tell me, tell me, tell me. I said, 20,000. I said, 10,000. He said, why must you exaggerate everything you always tell me? I said, I cut it in half in order not to embarrass you. <laughs> in those days, you would pick up people on the streets. You know, I would walk down 57th and every block I would pick up someone, take them to my apartment and have sex. At night, you would go to the baths. You would... You would you would fillet 20 people a night. Why was it so easy to... Because in the 70s, it was the, it was, that was the culture in New York and in L.A. Michael Jackson. 
I met Michael Jackson. Suzanne DePass is one of my best friends. Suzanne DePass I met in 1960, in 1971, when I came out to Hollywood. She was at the, to make Sparkle, 1972. She was at the Troubadour uh, uh, with Diana Ross, and we were watching Tata Vega. And Bobby Zaram, who was a publicist in New York, said to me, when you go to Hollywood, you should get in touch with Suzanne DePass because she'll love you. And she had written Lady Sings the Blues. So they were both sitting there together and I walked up to her and tapped her on the shoulder and I said, hi, my name is Howard Roseman and Bobby Zaram said that we were gonna be the best friends and we became best friends. Through, and we are, still are to this time. And we're making movies and TV together a lot. So Suzanne discovered Michael Jackson. So Suzanne, I, I was the only white boy that Barry Gordy had at the house in the early 70s on Saturday afternoon. All of the Motown people were there. And I was obsessed with Motown. I was obsessed with R&B when I was a kid because it's like Hasidic Jewish music, the music of joy and the lyrics of oppression. John Stewart used to have this line. He used to say, I don't understand why Jews and black people don't get along. We both oppressed for right. thousands and thousands of years. The only difference is Jews never figured out how to put it to music. <laughs> but they did because classical music is the same kind of music. Like, you know, it's the music of the church. It's not like rock and roll, which is angry music. So, and I was obsessed with R&B when I was a kid. That's what also made me different than everybody else. Because it was about the victim, you know. And it was like, you know, the person that's the one on the outs. I'll climb, ain't no mountain high enough. I want to get to you, oh Lord. Which transmogrified into I'll climb the gutter on shards of glass to be with you, oh baby, fuck me. You know, that's what R&B is, essentially. At any rate, um, and it also has a, another... Uh, in the Kabbalistic um, thought, there's this concept called dveikut, dveikus, which means the bonding together. The whole essence of life is that you're supposed to bond with the Godhead. But the contradiction is that you could never bond with the Godhead, but you always have to reach for it. Ain't no mountain high enough. You're all I need to get by. It's the same thing as music in the church, which the gospels took from the Jews, essentially. Dveikus, the, the Kabbalistic concept. At any rate, which is very, very different than rock and roll. So then I grew up with Hasidic Jewish music, because I come from four Hasidic dynasties, So uh, who were tale tellers, spielmeisters, spinners of tales. So um, Michael Jackson. So Suzanne introduces me to Michael Jackson, and I meet him at Barry Gordy's house every like uh, on the Saturdays that I'm invited. And they used to call me Triple R, Rufus Rastus Roseman, because they all knew that I loved R&B, and they loved me because I loved their music and I loved them. And I was raised by a black woman who was my mother's. So there's no kid. racism in your family. No racism. No. My father a little bit. My mother lo loved her companion, who first was her maid, then became her companion, and she ra helped raise. Effie's kids and Effie and Sparkle is the name of the mo of the mother. So um, I knew Michael a lot, and then uh, when Michael was in the Wiz, Lena Horn had invited me, and I was her waiter in at Arthur, and she liked me, and I developed a relationship with her. When she did the Wiz that her son-in-law Sidney Lumet was directing, and Joel Schumacher wrote the screenplay, and I got him the job through Ned Tannen, they invited me to the set. And Michael was on that set, and I hung with him a lot. Then later on, when Sandy Gallen managed Michael, 
and I was the head of Sand Dollar, where I made Father of the Bride and all those movies and Common Threads. Sand Dollar was Sandy Gallon's company for making movies and television. Sandy Gallon, Dolly Parton, Sand Dollar. And Michael Jackson had a film company called Nation Films that I was the head of. And so I knew a lot about Michael Jackson. Lots and lots and lots. Too much to tell you here. Can you tell us one story that you can tell us that no one would know? I had a limo driver in those days, and I would go to New York once every two weeks. My parents lived out in Long Island, 15 minutes from Kennedy Airport. So I would take the red eye to um, JFK, and the limo driver would pick me up and um, take me to my mother's. Like it's, I would be at my mother's at seven. I had a baby brother at the time. My brother, I have a brother that's 20, 19 years younger than me, Shep Roseman. He's an entertainment attorney, and he's very, very successful. He sold The Walking Dead to AMC. I'm very, very close to him. He's my lawyer. But when he was a baby, I would go out to see my parents in Long Island to see Shep, and I would take him to school in the limo, which he was always embarrassed by. And um, my mother was very social, and she loved, she didn't care whether you were Michael Jackson or David Geffen or Woody Allen or a limo driver. She would always invite the limo driver into the house for the breakfast with us. And he lived on Long Island. He had three sons. Well, me and this limo driver got very, very close through the years. So about two or three years later, the limo driver picks me up and he would take me around all day long. And then at night he would take me to the gay bars and I would give him beers and we got very close. So he picks me up and he says to me, Guess who had who I had in my limousine? Howard. Mr. Roseman. Who? I said. He said, Mr. Michael Jackson. I said, really? I said, who was he with? His cousin. Really, I would say. What does his cousin look like? Well, he's Danish and blonde as the sheer blonde and white as pale as snow. I said, oh, that was his cousin. Hmm. And what would you do? He said, well, I would take him through the Lincoln to, through the tunnel to New Jersey, and we would go to Toys R Us. And then I would drop them off, and the two of them would pick up toys at Toys R Us. And then I would take them to a hotel room, and they would play with the toys for four hours. Fantastic. Steve Martin. Steve Martin was the father of the bride, an intellectual, an artist, um... He was brilliant in Father of the Bride, and he's a very, very nice man and shy. Very. I love him. Hey, everybody. I've talked a lot about AquaTrue on this show, the amazing water purification system that's literally a miniature water cooler in your home that purifies the water in a way that no one else has ever figured out how to do. It's this incredibly efficient piece of equipment, and it gives you the best tasting water you can ever imagine for pennies. You just take it out of the box, plug it in, put your tap water in it, and it takes out all the bad chemicals and gives you the best and healthiest water you can ever imagine, saving you thousands of dollars each year from buying bottled water in the store. I have one at my house and office, and 
everyone who uses it orders one and you should too just go to industrystandardwater.com and type in the promo code barry and if you act now you can get a hundred dollars off and start enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever had and never waste another dollar buying bottled water again I just want to share another groundbreaking product with you. It's a revolutionary air purifier that will change the way your home operates. And I'm talking about the air doctor. The air inside our home can be up to a hundred times more polluted than the air outside. But with the air doctor, you don't have to worry about it as it removes dust, pet hair, mold, pollen, flu viruses and so many other contaminants that circulate throughout our homes. Till now, the only thing that could come close to this product were systems that cost thousands of dollars. But now you can get the Air Doctor for a fraction of the cost, normally $600. And if you don't believe me, check Amazon. But for a limited time, I can give you 50% off and save you $300. Just go to airdoctorpro.com, type in the promo code Barry, and get rid of all the bad toxins in your home. I'm telling you, I have this product. It really, really works. So get one now and start breathing the cleanest and healthiest air you can ever imagine. One of my favorite actresses of all time, one of the most underrated in my mind, Ruth Gordon. Oh. I'll tell you a great story about her. So Ruth Gordon, um, I'm making, um, isn't it shocking? And um, early in the morning on the first day of the shoot, it was in Seattle. It was in Washington. It was in Oregon, in Salem, Oregon. And we were at a motel, and it had a porch on the second floor. And all the trucks were rolling in. And I walked out onto the uh, balcony, and fog was rolling in. And I'm saying to myself, I can't believe this is the first day of the first shoot of my first movie. I'm making a movie. And Ruth Gordon came out and she saw the twinkle in my eyes. And she said, isn't it exciting? Look at the trucks rolling in and look at you. This is your first movie. Aren't you excited? Give me a hug. And Ruth and I became friends. And then I would see Ruth and Garson Kanan for lunch a lot in New York during those years at the Russian Tea Room. And then it was this late 70s. And I was in trouble, and my eyes were red, and I was on drugs, and Ruth would see me, and she said, Howard, I'm worried about you. You need to get help. I'm worried about you. Look at you. You have an amazing career ahead of you. What are you doing? Ruth was one of the first persons that I was listening to about my problem. That's how great she was. Elizabeth Taylor. Well, I was obsessed with Elizabeth Taylor since I was a kid. I went to the New York Public Library and went to the Reader's Guide to Periodical Literature and looked up Taylor Elizabeth and cut out every picture of Elizabeth Taylor that was in the New York Public Library and pasted them in my room in Far Rockaway. And my father would walk into the room and he knew that his little Svi was different than any of the other little boys. (laughs) And then um, when Elizabeth Taylor did Cleopatra, I cased out the Criterion Theater a week before, and I found out that above the bathroom there was this huge space with an air conditioning unit in that air conditioned the whole theater, and it had a lot of space. So the day of the opening of Cleopatra, I took my bar mitzvah suit, 
I went, snuck into the theater in the morning, eight hours before the premiere, got in, went to the, to the that space, climbed up on the toilet bowl, hoisted myself up, and waited there eight hours. And then I jumped down at about 7.30, or whatever the time was, half an hour before the performance, the screening, and Danny Kaye was pissing at the pissoir. And I was like covered in dust. And Danny looks at me and says, oh my God, an angel. <laughs> I dusted myself off. I went out into the theater and there, Beatrice Lilly, who was a famous English actress, sees me and says, oh my God, you must be Spiros's grandson, Spiros Skouris, who was the financier and producer. I said, yes, indeed I am. <laughs> so I went over to one of the ushers and I said, I'm Spiros's grandson. Where is my grandfather sitting? And I sat next to all of the people in Cleopatra, the opening night of Cleopatra. Then, two years later, Elizabeth, um, Richard Burton was doing Hamlet on Broadway at the Lundfontaine Theater. And I don't know how I did this. I don't know how I had the chutzpah. I um, convinced Richard that I was the producer's assistant, and I convinced the producers that I was Richard's assistant. And they believed me. And I got a job. And my job was to bring Elizabeth Taylor from the hordes outside. The police were all on horseback, pushing back the crowds. And I would take Elizabeth from the limousine, take her up to the uh, dressing room, and I would sit in the dressing room with Elizabeth and Richard during the first act intermission, the second act intermission. And I got very friendly with them. And when they found out I was full of shit, they loved me even more. Also, I took, there was a picture at Grossinger's, this great hotel in the Catskills. They had all these celebrities, the Jenny Grossinger. I, it took me a whole summer to get this picture off the knotty pine walls of Elizabeth, Eddie Fisher, and Jenny Grossinger. I have it in my house right here still. And then when I came out to Hollywood, um, I was friendly with Elizabeth. And then when I started Project Angel Food, which is the Meals on Wheels for uh, HIV and AIDS patients, um, Elizabeth gave me the first monies from the Elizabeth Taylor AIDS Foundation. And I was very close to her. And I helped her grandson get into, um, Quinn Tivy get into U USC. That's Elizabeth Taylor, the greatest, one of the greatest hum humanitarians that ever lived. Liam Neeson. Well, Melanie Griffith and Michael Douglas did the movie. And I was in Berlin. And one day I walked into the Winnebago, Melanie's Winnebago, and there was Liam Neeson, need I say more. Wow. Catherine Hepburn. The greatest person ever. I loved her. So it was all about being on time with her and being and doing your job. So she was at the theater. I forget which theater it was. It was a snowy day, six feet of snow in New York. I had an apartment on 63rd Street between Madison and Park. It was a five floor walk up in the only shitty building on that block. And I lived in an apartment that was the size of this table, okay? I was trying to, I was very death, deathly sick, had a terrible cold, and I was trying to reach Miss Hepburn. And in those days, there was a phone backstage, a pay phone. And I called it a hundred times, but I never got anybody. Well, I'm lying in my bed, sick as a dog, at around eight o'clock, I hear this pounding on my door. Who's that? It's Miss Hepburn, open up! Miss Hepburn? What are, you, what are you doing here? I was so worried about you. I was so worried about you. What? Oh, my God, you look terrible. Oh, my God, you have a terrible cold. We have to make some chicken soup for you. 
She goes into my kitchen, small little kitchen, and she's opening up the closet doors and she says, where's the tureen? Where's the tureen? <laughs> and I didn't even know what a fucking tureen was. She said, don't you have any tureen? I said, no, I never cook. Is there a deli around here? I said, yes, two blocks away, there's Kaplan's Deli on 59th Street and 3rd Avenue, Lexington Avenue, um, three blocks away. I'm going there to get you some chicken soup. You want some matzo balls? Miss Hepburn trudged in the snow, six feet of snow, got me chicken soup with matzo balls, trudged through the snow, brought it back to me, Oh, came up, and then my gross anatomy book was there. It was a big, big book the size of this table, and she served me the chicken soup with matzo balls on that gross anatomy book. That's Miss Hepburn. Julia Roberts' story about her relationship with your mother. So I made this movie... My first movie, Sober. Okay. After I come, oh, so after I come back from Israel, my doctor says, you're not going to die of this disease if you have the virus. I sell an idea to Mike Metavoy at Orion, Mike and Mark Platt, about a teenage cuckoo's nest. Um, and uh, call, it was called Lunatics. It later became Lost Angels. It was an idea from my head because when I came back, everybody was saying, Howard Roseman, he's a party boy. He's a drug addict. Don't trust him. Okay, and I was freaked out, and I thought I was being put into an institution. And so um, I came up with this idea about a middle-class boy that's put into an institution against his will, and the only way that he can get out is by killing the head of the institution. So Adam Horowitz later played it and with Donald Sutherland, and you, Hudson, who directed Chariots of Fire, decided to commit to the screenplay. Julia Roberts came in when she was 17 for an audition, and she was about 30 pounds heavier, gap between her teeth, frizzy, frizzy hair, and she came into audition. And the director said to me, you Hudson, she's too old. But I never did this before since. I went over to Julia and I said to her, Julia, she's 17, go home, write a diary, come back tomorrow, read from the diary and I'll get the director to film you reading it, which she did. She never got the part, but Julia and I got very close. Then Julia goes on to do that, I think Satisfaction was called, a rock and roll movie. Then she did... Um, uh, Mystic Pizza and then she does Steel Magnolias where uh, what's his name Herb Ross cursed her out all the time and embarrassed her and I called up Herb Ross because Dolly was my boss and she was in Steel Magnolias and I said to her if you continue doing this to Julia I'm going to come to Tennessee and break your fucking neck and I'm going to tell everybody that you, I saw you getting fucked by a black guy in the baths which I did and he never bothered her again. And Julia and Dolly and I had a big laugh about that. So Julia and I get very, very close. And then um, Julia um, meets my mother. And my mother and Julia get very close on both sets. And then she quotes my mother. I gave Julia for her 30th birthday the tape of the, in, of the audition that she did when she was 17 and a half. And I still have it. And then when my mother died, in 2001, when I got off the plane, Julia was the first call that I got. And she said, my father died when I was very young. You're going to sleep over at the Beverly Hills Hotel with me, to Bel Air Hotel with me, and I'm going to teach you how to deal with this because her father died very young. And I did that. I got very close to Julia. And then three or four months later, she won the Oscar. But a week before, she came out to Hollywood with her boyfriend, I forget his name, the Hispanic guy. And she said, um, 
you're going to spend this week with me. I said, oh, Julie, I'm so depressed I can't get out of my bed. She said, you depressed are more interesting than anybody not depressed. <laughs> and I spent the week with them. And then at the party afterwards, uh, I was with her and where I met Charlie Kushner. Charlie Kushner. Charlie Kushner is Jared Kushner's father. And he, uh, Holocaust survivor's son, has a brother and two sisters and was the biggest uh, real estate developer in New Jersey. And he was a modern Orthodox Jew. I grew up with his wife. Um, and um, in Farakway, she was my next door neighbor. And um, Jared's mother, who's married to Ivanka Trump. And um, so Charlie was a big guy that every Orthodox Jew went to for charity. He was like the godfather of the Jewish organization. And he raised his kids to be the Jewish Kennedys. He was very, very important to the whole modern Orthodox community and the ultra-Orthodox community in New Jersey during the 80s and 90s and aughts. And um, so Charlie is at the night that Julia has her party. He's there. Very rich people can buy their way into movie stars' parties by donating money to their favorite charities. And Charlie had a lot of money. He came with his daughter. Julia introduced him to Charlie and says, this is the best picture in Hollywood, one of my closest friends. Charlie, a star fucker, comes up to me and schmeichels me, Yiddish word for kisses ass. And Charlie and I got friendly. And Charlie then flew me into New Jersey five times because five of my cousins were working for him. One of my cousins was the CEO. Three of my other cousins were selling apartments in New Jersey. And so he flew me in to speak to his staff about pitching, which is about selling. Because Julia told Charlie that I was the best pitcher in Hollywood. And the rules of pitching, which I taught at USC and I teach now at Brooklyn College, how to pitch a story, are the same rules about selling, you know, telling a story about how to pitch, how to sell. And so Charlie would fly me in and me and Tiki Barber who was about branding, we would do these things together. We did that for five years. Harvey Weinstein. I knew Harvey real well, because his first wife was a documentary filmmaker. And she told Harvey that I was a genius because I made common threads in the cellular closet. So Harvey treated me like a genius, always. Harvey, um, and then when I worked for Brillstein Gray, Brad Gray had worked for Harvey um, at Boston University when they were in the music business. And so, I and Harvey and Brad did a lot of business together. And I always talked to Harvey about doing business. He's always very polite to me. When I was running big companies, like Sand Dollar or Brillstein Gray, they had sister companies. You now. ran Brillstein Gray's movie department. Right. Yes, I worked for Bernie and Brad, okay, after I left Sand Dollar. This, Robert Stigwood was a manager, and he managed the careers of Eric Clapton and um, Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice and the Bee Gees. It get, you, you need leverage in Hollywood, whether it's money or relationships or relationships with movie stars or leverage. So I had it with RSO Films. With Sandy Gallen, he managed the management company, managed Dolly Parton, Neil Diamond, Barbara Streisand, Michael Jackson, uh, Richie Pryor, uh, the Pointer Sisters. He managed an amount of people, and all those people in concert 
in all their areas of entertainment threw off per annum $300 million a year. In California, managers can't make deals legally, only agents can. We, as the management company, pushed all those clients to CAA. So essentially, we were writing a check to Ovitz for $30 million a year when he was bestrode the town like a colossus, Mike Ovitz. And what was he doing for you? Well, he had to be very nice to me, which he was. But he had a hundred other schmucks just like me that he had to be nice to. But I learned judiciously how to use those levers of power such that I was able to make eight movies when I was there. And Mike respected me. Now, Brillstein Gray had the same arrangement because they had a management company and they managed Brad Pitt and Nick Cage and all the Saturday Night Live players. Same thing. We pushed them all to CAA. Because if they didn't deliver, I could whisper to one of the clients, let's go to ICM. You understand? It was, it was you know, mutual assured destruction. So, um, but the management companies, the women in the management companies, like Jeannie Triplehorn, they always wanted me to be involved in their management lives. Even though I was the head of the film company, they wanted me to be involved because I was empathetic. Whenever any of my women had an audition with Harvey Weinstein in New York during the late 80s and early 90s, I would never let them go alone. Why? Because I knew that Harvey would make my women feel small. How would you I, know? I just knew. I didn't know that he was raping them or jerking off into plants, but I knew, everybody knew what was going on, that he was unfaithful to his wife and that he was a womanizer. And he belittled women and he was a bully. Now, he was never that way to me. He was always nice to me, I must say. But I didn't want my women to feel compromised in any way. So either I would fly in with them or I would get somebody from Wilson Gray in New York to be with the actress in a room with Harvey. And those women have all called me up in the past six months to thank me. A little speed round here. I just want you to tell me one word to describe these industry monsters. David Geffen. Smartest person in show business. Smartest person that ever lived in show business. Michael Ovitz. The most cunning person. And he abused his situation and uh, lost it all. Brad Gray. A nightmare. Ari Emanuel. The greatest person ever, the most loyal. I have a great Ari Emanuel story. Ari Emanuel, for those of you who don't know, was one of the original partners, I believe, at Endeavor. And then he went on to create somehow, some way, the ability to have a merger between William Morris and Endeavor. And now they're called, obviously, William Morris Endeavor. She's one of the most powerful people in this business. At any rate, when I was running Sand Dollar, I get a call from Ed Lamato. Ed Lamato was the uh, agent at ICM who represented Mel Gibson, Richard Gere, and Michelle Pfeiffer. He was the most important talent agent in town and very flamboyant. Incredible. I got a chance to meet him. He was wonderful. He used to come in when I was living in that little apartment that Catherine Evan came to. Eventually, I had a roommate who was Ed Lamato's assistant. Ed Lamato used to come to work in motorcycle boots and pants and a motorcycle jacket. At any rate, Ed Lamato calls me in the late 80s, who's a good friend of mine, and says, you're running a big company. He says to me, I have a young assistant on my desk. He speaks fluent Hebrew like you do. You run a big company. You have a lot of information. Ari Emanuel's on my desk. He has a lot of information. I want the two of you to meet so that you can exchange information. Yeah, I'm going to have him call you. So the young Ari Emanuel. And he says, keep your hands off of him because he was very handsome, beautiful. I said, I don't like him young, Eddie, as you know. So Ari Emanuel calls me, let's have breakfast. We have breakfast. And every three months we have breakfast. 
we speak Hebrew. We get very close. Two years later, I'm in New York. I had an apartment in New York after I came back from Israel on 3rd Avenue and 9th Street. And I would go to the Kiev Deli on 6th Street, 6th Street and 2nd Avenue in the mornings to have breakfast. This one Monday morning, a foggy, rainy morning, in walks Ari Emanuel. I say to Ari, what are you doing here? He said, oh, I have a meeting, an important meeting tomorrow. I said, what are you doing today? He said, no plans. I said, good. You're going to spend it with me. We'll go to the movies, and then I'll take you to all my meetings, and I'll take you to a big party tonight. So we go to see Goodfellas. We walk out of Goodfellas, and Ari says to me, one day I'm going to represent that director, Marty Scorsese, which he does. Then I take him to a meeting with Barry Diller at the Gulf and Western Building and introduce Ari Emanuel, the young Ari Emanuel, as the next Mike Ovitz to Barry. Barry's very nice to him. Then I take him to a party at Diane von Furstenberg's. I introduce Diane to Barry, and they are married now. And at that party, me and Ari are the least important people there. And I introduce Ari to Henry Kissinger, to Bob Evans, to Warren Beatty, to Jack Nicholson as the next Mike Ovitz. So five years ago, I get a call. Guess what city I'm in? It's Ari. What city are you in? Guess. New York? Yes. Where are you? He said, guess. I said, you're at the Kiev Deli. He said, bingo. He said, that was the day I realized that I could be the next Mike Ovitz because the guys like you took me under their wing and now it's payback time. I want you in my office in two weeks for an idea for a series and I'll set it up. And that's how John from Cincinnati happened. That's Ari Emanuel. And I teach this in my course that I teach at the Symposium on Producing, Writing, Directing. I say to the kids, don't get friendly with the big guys. Get friendly with the assistants on the desk because those are the guys that you can call cold, they'll see you, and you'll grow with them in the business. And eventually they'll become Ari Emanuel. Bernie Brillstein. One of the real show business grandfathers, the Santa Claus of show business, the greatest guy uh, just uh, so bigger than life, so inclusive, so including. That's why I went to Brilston Gray, not because of Brad Gray. I loved Bernie. And Brad Gray fucked him. Jeffrey Katzenberg. Well, I mean, one of the most uh, durable persons in show business. I mean, he was the hardest worker in show business and successful beyond belief. And I met Jeffrey right after he was uh, Mayor Lindsay's assistant. And... Um, Introduced him to uh, Barry Diller, and he became Barry Diller's assistant. And Mike, then I made seven movies for Jeffrey when he was at uh, Disney. Michael Eisner and Madonna. So after I come back from Israel and I set up Lost Angels and everybody shit on me, um, everybody shit on me, I had an idea. I wanted to make a um, musical, film musical, called Street Smart about, oh, I know what happened. For those two or three years that I just came back, I never went out because all my friends were dying. I thought I was sick. Eventually I had the test in 1986 and I'm HIV negative. Okay, and I found out that I had a lactose intolerance through Shirley MacLaine. I had this lactose, that, that's why I was fainting and had diarrhea and, and sweating because I was working for Shirley. She was doing her 50th birthday show she was doing her 50th birthday show on Broadway. And Chris Adler, who was the son of Richard Adler, who, who um, uh, had written Damn Yankees in Pajama Game, um, and, ha and uh, I had no money. And so Chris Adler 
called Shirley, who she was very close to, who he's very close to, and said, you should fly Howard Roseman into New York and he should sit there for the three weeks in previews. He knows a lot about politics and he's very funny and he should write jokes. So Bruce Valanche and I did that for three weeks during the previews. Bruce Valanche, for those of you who don't know, was a famous, famous writer. He came to fame doing the Hollywood Squares. He was one of the head writers there. And he wrote, he writes all the Oscar shows. So Chris said to Shirley, if Howard comes up with three jokes, he's paid for your whole thing during the, the three weeks of previews. If you use three of his jokes, it's cool. So I would go there and every night I would go to the bathroom and sweat and had diarrhea and fainted. And Shirley would walk in and pick me up off the floor and I would cry and say to her, Shirley, I have AIDS. This is 1984. She said, you don't have fucking AIDS. You have a lactose intolerance. How do you know that I have a lactose intolerance? Because you keep on eating these fucking cheese sandwiches. So I call up Ashley Lipschitz, the same doctor that told me I had AIDS. And he said, he said I said to him, Shirley McLean here tells me that I have a lactose intolerance, that I don't have AIDS. Well, when did Mr. McLean go to medical school? Before or after chorus girl school? <laughs> I said, well, what should I do? He said, stop eating dairy and see what happens. I stopped eating dairy. I don't faint. I don't have sweat. I don't have diarrhea. And then it was the 84 Olympics here, and I have my apartment in New York. And I'm, um, and I'm like all great former drug addicts. I say to myself, what does Shirley know? What does my doctor know? There was a good humor truck outside of my apartment. It was a hot August night. The Olympics were playing out here. I buy myself a good humor cone and eat it. 45 minutes later, I'm out on the floor, fainted. So I have a lactose intolerance. That's what I had. I didn't have AIDS. At any rate, so, so I'm in New York. I'm living in New York at the time. And um, I'm going to AA and NA meetings at St. Mark's Squares. Okay, I'm the oldest person there. All the kids are like 15 and 14 and 16-year-old African-American and black pimps and drug dealers. They're remanded by the courts to go to this NA and CA meeting uh, at the St. Mark's place. And one night, and I didn't go out for two years. I was celibate and monastic for two years. And one night, a friend of mine calls me and says, you're back in the swing of things. You should start going out. And all my friends are dying because you got to know what's going on in the culture. And the culture has changed gigantically since you were at your peak in 1978. It's now 1984, 85. I said, okay. So he took me to a club uh, called The Fun House on 10th Avenue, 11th Avenue and 28th Street. It's now called Twilo. I go there. All the kids are 15, 16-year-olds. It's a juice bar. The friend says to me, you're not going to run into people like Paul Schrader who can give you any Coke. It's a juice bar. You're safe. I go there. I'm standing in my white, white chinos, white Adidas. I'm the oldest person there. I'm 37. Everybody's 15 and 16. And all of a sudden, this young girl who's wearing like, like uh, lingerie and beads and crosses comes out and sings this song called Holiday. I think that was the song. And star fucker that I am, I go up to her afterwards and I say to her, remember I told you that I could sniff her? I say, you're going to be on the cover of Time Magazine in six months. I produced Sparkle and The Resurrection, the main event. And she bows to me, introduces me to her boyfriend, Jellybean, who's playing the music, and Madonna and Jellybean and I. Oh, then we go around to all the bars in New York after her sets. And in a gay, black, lesbian bar, I meet a girl named Whoopi. She's not gay, but she's there with a close gay friend. 
And then Madonna and I and Whoopi Goldberg go with Jellybean to this great club on Varick Street called Paradise Garage, which has the greatest R&B music in the world. A lot of drag queens went. And it was all night long. And you then went out on the balcony to watch the sunrise. And it went till Sunday afternoon. And it was the greatest music in the world. Madonna would always go there. Keith Haring always went there. And then I had this idea about these kids that I'm listening to tell their stories at my AA and CA meetings. I said, I should do a remake of Oliver Twist today. And I should get Madonna to play the Artful Dodger. And I should Whoopi play Fagin and have Jellybean do the music. And I got Jellybean to do a soundtrack for me, five songs, okay? Oh, um, a lot of fair famous people wrote songs. Madonna wrote a song. Um, and um, I go around town pitching my idea. And everybody thinks I'm insane. Now, when I came back from Israel, David Geffen took me under his wing, and there were 200 people who weren't speaking to me because I had a big mouth on drugs. David Geffen called up every one of those people and said, Hal Roseman's off of drugs. He's doing well now. Forgive him. Give him a chance. David did that for me. And then, so I go to Michael Eisner to pitch this idea. He's at Disney. He, I leave the office, and he calls up Geffen, and he said, your friend Howard Roseman is back on drugs. He's walking around pitching these ideas of these one-name wonders, no, Whoopi, Madonna, J J Jellybean. He's out of his fucking mind. He's crazy. He's back on drugs. No one knows who these people are. David Geffen calls me up and screams at me. I'm spending my time getting your reputation right, and you're going around pitching this stupid fucking idea with these one-name wonders that no one knows? <laughs> Three months later, four months later, Madonna's on the cover of Time Magazine. A week later, Whoopi's on the cover of Time Magazine. And Michael Eisner calls me up and says to me, I have to apologize to you because this is what I did when you walked out of my office. I called your best friend, David Geffen, and I said this. He said, I want you on my lot. And that's how I got my deal at Disney. And I made seven movies for Jeffrey Katzenberg. And Madonna called me the smartest person in Hollywood. Introduced me to Taylor Leone as the smartest person in Hollywood. So I owe my career to Madonna. And she's still a friend of mine. Your proudest moment in show business? I have two. Uh, when we won the Oscar for Common Threads, okay, and then when Call Me By Your Name won the Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level? There are so many, okay? There are so many disappointments because as I tell my students, this business is about 99.9999999999% rejection. You have to find the one schmuck to say yes. So I'll tell this great story about David Geffen. So in the mid 80s, when I came back from Israel at the time, Geffen did Lifespring, which is a communications workshop, which is like EST, which teaches you about being on time, which teaches you about passion, which teaches you about standing up for yourself, which teaches you about leadership. Essentially, I didn't want to do it. David forced me into it. So I did the basic five days. I did the advanced five days. And then you do the leadership, which is six months. We use the principles of the basic of the advanced in the real world. And LifeSpring at the time was all about homelessness. And it's about giving back. You learn how to organize homeless feeds, essentially. You, you know. Now, um, my trip in life is I stand in the back of the room with my arms folded, looking at everybody else in the room, thinking they're garbage, thinking that I'm the best. And then I let my guard down and I 
stop unfolding my arms. I sit in the back row and I think to myself, these people aren't better than you. And I get humble. And I move to the next row and I move to the next row and I move to the front row. And then I take over and become the leader. And the leader is about the person that expressed the most vulnerability in the room and, is, and can do it and has leadership potential. That's my trip in every area of my life, professionally, socially, every area, okay? That's how I function. So I go to LifeSpring. I do the basic, the advance and the leadership. And there were 51 leadership programs at that time, and LifeSpring was a corporation. At the time, AIDS was fulminating, and they wanted me to do this project that all my 50 people about homeless people, they had done 51 projects about homeless. I went up to the live spring brass and I said, listen, I'm not doing homeless because they teach you how to put the stick in the river and change the course of the river. And they teach you to stand up for your ideas. I said, I want to do something about AIDS. At that time, mothers and fathers would come from Poland and Cuba and Afghanistan to find, go to Cedar sinai and find out in five minutes that their sons were going to die. They were gay and they were going to die of AIDS. So there was all this screaming and caterwauling in the hallways. I wanted to make a safe space for the doctors to be able to speak to the parents, for the patients who had AIDS, to be able to watch television and read magazines in a safe space, a green room, essentially. And so I convinced the, the, the brass to do that, and they let me do it. So I called a meeting. I'm now revered and loved and honored. I call a meeting for my 50 people and no one shows up. No one. I call up Geffen and I say to Geffen, fuck this, I'm quitting. I can't believe that I've devoted all this time and all these people just don't show up. Let me tell you a story about my mother, Bacha Geffen, he says to me. Kiev, 1906. She's walking to school, she's six years old with her books. And the Cossacks came. The Cossacks were anti-Semitic Russian soldiers that permit that reigned these atrocities on the Jewish community. The Cossacks come and they push six-year-old Bacha Geffen to the floor and her books fall. Bacha Geffen gathers her books, picks herself up, dusts off her dress and continued walking. And the Cossacks come again, and they push Bachegeffen to the floor, and her books fall. Bachegeffen gathers her books, gets up, dusts off her dress, and continues walking. And the Cossacks come again, and they push Bachegeffen to the floor, and her books fall. Bachegeffen gathers her books, gets up, dusts off her dress, and continues walking. She walks all the way to Palestine, where she meets my father, falls in love with him, marries him, and has me, and I'm a billionaire. <laughs> Last question. What advice do you have for the young person who is growing up in an abusive sort of situation, maybe doesn't know or understand why he's born with the sexuality he's born with? And how does he figure out and navigate through all the adversity, whether gay, straight, or asexual, and figure out how to have the kind of unbelievable and extraordinary and inspiring career that you've had. Joel Schumacher and Liz Smith used to say to me, push your faults, okay? You've got to take this adversity and instead of bending into it, use it to learn. Get up on the horse again. Continue walking. Continue walking. Get up and continue walking. It's not about rocket science. It's about three things. Passion, because you get rejected so many times, you have to have passion. You know, it, from, I teach my students at the moment from conception of idea till the moment of first dollar received, the average is seven. Some take one year to make a movie, some take 20. So 
you have to have passion for your idea in order to accept the rejection that you're invariably going to get on every single project. Every one of my projects was turned down a hundred times. Okay. So as Joel Schumacher says, next, okay, passion, tenacity, next, keep on walking, get up, walk, get on the horse again, get up, walk. It's not rocket science. It's all about tenacity and the person that has the most tenacity and the most passion wins. But above all, you must have taste in order to make a movie. You've got to listen to your ideas. The one thing that I've learned is to submit to a higher power, you know, and when you realize when you're down and out that nothing's going to happen, just submit to a higher power and pray, whatever that might be. That's the single, the most important thing is to be able to have the humility to understand that you can't control things. Now, you can push it and push it and push it, but you can't control it. And you've got to understand that, okay? And if you believe enough in your project, you can make it happen. But sometimes it doesn't happen. And at that ta time, you turn it over, you submit it whatever it is that you believe in. Have the humility to be able to do that. Humility is a very important thing. Arrogance will kill. Hubris kills. I have a sign in my office, hubris kills. And so if you have that, you'll do okay. Howard Rosenman, this has been one of the most unbelievable podcasts I've ever been a part of in my life. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I had this so long, so intense. Okay, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who sent me a message, and one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, landing on LBCC student by Nora Serrato, October 7th, 2018. Five stars. It reads, Barry genuinely interacted with so many in the industry that the personal stories and laughter will crack you up, all the while teaching you some invaluable lessons about the industry. I've listened to about 20 of the podcasts, and I feel like an insider. Wow. Thanks a lot, Nora. Serato, you are a winner. And that wraps up part two of our podcast. I just wanted to thank my incredible partners, starting with Wondery. Check out their lineup of some of the greatest podcasts in the world at Wondery.com. And Aquatrue, the revolutionary miniature countertop water purification system that works straight out of the box. Plug it in, fill it with tap water, and immediately turn your faucet into your favorite bottled water for pennies. You can get $100 off when you go to industrystandardwater.com and just type in the promo code BEAR and start enjoying the best water you've ever had and never buy another bottle of water again. And I Killed JFK, the groundbreaking film about the only living person who admitted to killing Kennedy. Go to IKillJFK.com, buy the film and the rare interviews with five of the last living experts, and I guarantee it'll change your mind about what happened that day. 
and the Air Doctor, the innovative portable air purification system which will change your overall quality of life. It instantly removes dust, pet hair, mold, pollen, flu viruses, and other contaminants circulating in your home. Normally $600, and if you don't believe me, check Amazon right now. But for a limited time, I can offer you 50% off. That's a $300 savings. Just go to airdoctorpro.com, type in the promo code Barry, and start breathing the cleanest and healthiest air in the world. And Good Company, an extraordinary web series on YouTube that host Scott Bowling created where you can watch music interviews with incredible artists talking openly about their journey in the music business. If you like a great in-depth music interview where you can hear about each album in chronological order and what the artist experienced along the way, this is the show for you. Interviews with incredible talents like Michael Sweet from Striper, Clinton Lejean from Seven Dust, Brian Head Welsh from Corn, Elias from Nonpoint, Mikey from Islander, Sonny from POD, and Rich Ward from Fozzy and Stuck Mojo, just to name a few. Check out Good Company on any social media outlet under Good Company with Bowling or go to www.scottgoodcompany.com. And finally, Boku Superfoods, the purest, most potent, and delicious certified organic, kosher, and vegan superfood blends on the planet. Boku Superfood is changing the game for thousands of people in 65 countries with their incredible formulated powers that you just add any liquid to and make the healthiest drinks or smoothies in the world. Just go to BokuSuperfood.com. That's B-O-K-U Superfood.com. Look for the three-pack trial. Enter the promo code Barry at checkout. Just pay a minimal shipping fee and get a full week's supply of Boku Superfood for free. I guarantee you'll look and feel better and understand why Boku is the number one family-owned superfood company in the world. And here's a preview of the next very special episode. Big J Okerson. Don't let discouraging things discourage you because those those stories kept me going a long time through my career too was the the famous ones. I know you probably heard a zillion times too. Desperate housewives sat on a shelf for five years, you know. It doesn't matter like one it just takes one person to kind of figure it out and start a thing, you know, and, and to even start like a movement going in your way. Thank you so much for listening, and have a great day. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money, drive that fancy car. All the people love you. You're going for life is for the dreamers. They have all to gain. It's never quite over till it all feels the same. You pick your own poison, dig your own grave down in the valley. Fortune
Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support and have a great day.